Tommy Uva was not a tough kid. He was a skinny, was a skinny heroin addict. Yeah. He lived across the street from McDonald's and would with them, he broke their window. He robs the place that he's breaking their balls for decades. And he wears a ski mask and he winds up going, he does time for that. But I worked in a gas station up the block from his house. Tommy Uva used to hang out with really rough knock around guys. So if you put him, you had to deal with these gorillas that he hung out with. And he would come into my gas station all the time, like drive in and give me $2 and bro, change right. it us. You couldn't really do anything with him i remember me and my friend one time we picked up these two girls i was like 17 so uva uva must have been about 18 19 we're coming out of mcdonald's parking lot and he said something to my friend next thing you know they're in a fight i'm with the two girls and my friend beat out of tommy uva kicked his ass in the parking lot right next day i'm pumping gas he comes into the gas station with jumps out of the car with a paper roll for i'm like look at him like it's not a bat it's a roll of paper right But the guys he was with would have beat at him. He's parked, and this is on a midnight. So my lieutenant gets on the radio and goes, hey, Vic, go up there and recover that car and try not to be seen. Like, not to be seen. So I I walk up there. The car's running. It's on a midnight. Once I'm in this car, I'm like in a tomb. The whole interior has been stripped. So there's no door handles, no nothing. I don't even know how to get back out of the car. The dashboard is stripped. And the interior of the car had been sprayed with WD-40 so, so you can't recover fingerprints. So now I'm sliding around in this car. I can't get out of it and a 4-7 police car drives by and I said, oh, shit, if they run my plate, it's going to come back stolen. I can't even roll down the windows. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there back here in Studio Gangland Wire. And I have an interesting guy, to say the least, another retired copper just like me. And and like I used to say, out of the mouths of the men that did it, well, this is a guy that did it. And now he writes stories about it while well, he writes fiction but he uses his real life experiences of course to tell his fictional stories vic ferrari welcome vic gary thank you so much for having me on your show i'm a big fan great well you know when you got hold of me you said you'd been listening to the podcast for a while and and oh, so yeah. I, I i appreciate that and we take all the listeners we can and I, I like to entertain people and i can tell you do too i looked at some of the clips <laughs> of you and other shows and i thought he likes to entertain people <laughs> so anyhow vic i get you were with uh nypd and and where'd you spend most of your career like i spent most of mine with the intelligence unit here in kc where'd you spend most of your career for the most part, I worked in the Organized Crime Control Bureau, which and and compartmentalized in the Organized Crime Control Bureau. I worked in the NYPD's Auto Crime Division as a detective for the last ten years of my career. Okay, cool. You retired, and did you start writing before you retired, or when did you get interested in writing? Did you have a did you have an English lit degree at some point in your life? No, I got a high school diploma. Um, <laughs> After I retired from the NYPD, I was bored out of my mind and friends and family said, you know, you got all these wild stories. You know how to tell a story. Why don't you start writing these things down? And I did. And I start, I've written a series. I've written six books, four of which are a behind the scenes look at the New York City Police Department. You know, things that pe- people wouldn't normally think about with, with the NYPD. If you were to recommend one of your titles, uh, which one are you like maybe the most proud of or that, that you like personally yourself? Uh, they're all my babies, but I would go with Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. That's everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry, who steals your car, or car thief's mindset, what happens to your car at the chop shop, how the auto theft industry works, insurance fraud, how to protect your vehicle from being stolen, and the scams that car thieves use to get your car. Oh, interesting. You know, I, we were talking before, and 
you know, I had this uh, guy, a, a mob guy, a mob associate named Andrew DiDonato. Uh, folks, you want to go back and, and search, you'll find that old interview. He's a fun guy. And, and he was, he was your counterpart on the other side. He, he was a mob guy who, who was stealing cars. And, and he told a really fun story about a time that, that he was backing a car out of his chop shop. And he, and the only thing they'd taken the steering wheel off was Mercedes. And it was a real highly desired steering wheel. So I had a pair of channel locks on the uh, nut that, that would hold the steering wheel on. And, and mainly like a bunch of the fenders were off of it. And, and he had to put a, a milk crate or some other seat in there to sit on. And, and he backed out and then he started driving down the street because he wanted to get it away from their chop shop. And the NYPD car pulls up behind him and turns red lights on and he ends up in a car chase <laughs> and he eludes him enough that he could bail out and, and then run through the neighborhoods, which God, I'd never caught anybody myself <laughs> in a car chase, <laughs> maybe one time, but uh, maybe you don't catch him. So you got any experiences like that? Oh, plenty. I mean, and in, in, in you got to remember in the 90s, New York City averaged 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. So it was like shooting fish in the barrel. I remember going to like the Hunts Point section of the Bronx and you'd be driving around and you'd see two heroin addicts drive past you in a car with no glass. The windshield is gone. The back windows are gone. Or like you said, the doors are like a clown car at the circus. Like it's missing major component parts, the hood. And they just go by and you're like, what the? And by the time you start making that U-turn, you're off to the races. And we were talking about off air. We were doing a case where... We had these guys shipping cars to Shanghai, and the main the main facilitator of this case was also chopping cars in his backyard. So we were doing a midnight. I'm on a rooftop watching this guy's garage. Dodge Caravan goes in there for about an hour or so. We run the plate. It's stolen. The caravan backs out, goes up to White Plains Road, and gets parked. And this is on a midnight. So my lieutenant gets on the radio and goes, hey, Vic, go up there and recover that car and try not to be seen. Like, not to be seen. So I, I walk up there. The car's running. It's on a midnight. I jump into this Dodge Caravan. I shut the door. It's running. And then the first thing I realize once I'm in this car, I'm like in a tomb. The whole interior has been stripped. So there's no door handles, no nothing. I don't even know how to get back out of the car. The dashboard is stripped. And the interior of the car had been sprayed with WD-40 so so as, so you can't recover fingerprints. So now I'm sliding around in this car. I can't get out of it. And a 4-7 police car drives by. And I said, oh, shit, if they run my plate, it's going to come back stolen. I can't even roll down the windows to tell them, hey, I'm a cop showing my ID. They're going to wind up pulling me out of the window by my head. The 4-7 car comes behind me. I slap it into drive and I take off. Now I'm getting chased by another police car. I'm trying to get our radio on the correct frequency to tell them to back off. And I'm yelling into the radio to my counterpart. We're on point to point, which is like walkie-talkie. And I'm telling them, go over the air and tell the 4-7 to back off. They're going to kill me. So finally, I lost the police. I can drive. I lost them. I drove into a um, a Metro North commuter parking lot off the Bronx River Parkway, and I kicked out the back window of the car. That was the only way I could escape. And I got out, and then my friends pull in a couple of minutes later, and they're laughing at me. I'm covered in glass. I'm like, shit, I mean, I almost got killed. <laughs> and WD-40. <laughs> wow, that's a heck of a story. You probably had lots of adventures like that in New York. Like you said, it was probably like shooting fish in the barrel. It's And especially if you're a guy that has an eye for a used stolen car. There's some guys that have an eye for that. I yeah, was Terry Finn, the guy my my favorite guy I ever worked with. That guy found more stolen cars and found more occupied stolen cars and had car chases and everybody else put together. It was unbelievable. So you had that eye, I think. 
Well, I grew up in a neighborhood where where stealing a car was a rite of passage. I wasn't a car thief, but at an early age, I worked in a gas station. And there was always guys driving through there with stolen cars, either trying to sell parts, get gas. And, you know, I'd see the broken steering column, the punched vent window, the punched door lock, um, you know, dirty, beat up plates on a brand new car. There's telltale signs. The balloon tire, you know, like the tire you get a flat, it's supposed to last you 40 miles. Yeah. You know, these guys got car thief or a junkie who's driving around a stolen car. They're not going to go and invest in a tire. They'll drive that thing until the tire falls off. So there are things to look for. And, yeah, I was always getting into car chases. <laughs> Interesting. So in your book, for example, uh, uh, give us some examples of some stories out of your book of the NYPD. Uh, of auto theft? Sure. Yeah, um, auto theft. Yeah, I'm sorry. Some grand theft auto. I forgot the name of a grand theft. No, it's fine. It's fine. So. I worked in the Bronx office. We had a little bit of the mafia, but our Queens and Brooklyn offices, they basically targeted, you know, the Gambinos, the Lucchese's. Every mafia family had their finger in the pie of auto theft one way or another, whether they actually owned a salvage yard or a junkyard or a body shop. Other guys would just rent a place like a garage somewhere and hire a couple of guys to steal cars. Or they would take a tax off the car thieves would be an associate. So in case they get robbed or screwed with with another family, they go, oh, time out. I'm with Sally Bugs or I'm with, you know, Joey the Cat. So they can't get ripped off. Um, In the Bronx, John Gotti's son-in-law opened up a scrap metal processor. And it it was probably one of the largest on the eastern seaboard. I mean, he could have made a legit living operating out of there. But prior to coming to the Bronx, he basically ran the Willits Point section of Brooklyn. So over by Shea Stadium and now City Field, it's all body shops, glass places, salvage yards. For you to own and operate a business in there, you had to pay a tax. So what our Queens office did and Brooklyn office did was they rented out an old junkyard, filled it with cars and and started working. And they thought that like, you know, Gotti's son-in-law was going to send a couple of guys to threaten them, he showed up. And I mean, the trailer was wired for sound and he's telling them, you know, what are you guys nuts? Can't just come in here and operate. <laughs> you got to pay me. You got to use my carding company, blah, 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 blah. So eventually our Queens guys got into bed with him. And for over a year and a half, they were paying the tax. They were using the private sanitation company. There was an, I remember there was a company, if you own a junkyard or a salvage yard, you have to you have to have a company come and take your waste oils. So you're supposed to be oh, dismantling yeah. these yeah. vehicles on a concrete slab as so the oils don't go into the ground. Yeah. And basically everybody was using this company that wasn't picking up the oil. They were just giving you a piece of paper in case somebody had like the oil was in. going into fucking Jamaica Bay. <laughs> so when they when our Queen's office took that down, he wound up getting like nine years. Uh, interesting. That's a good one. There's a guy named Roy DeMayo. That that had a big stolen car operation. Did you do you remember that name? Oh sure, I, I read the book Murder Machine. It's an excellent book. Now that that was my office, the Queen's office of the Auto Crime Division. I think the detective's name was Joe Wendling. There was a bunch of guys, but that that was prior to me coming on because I think okay. Roy DeMeo was killed. I think in 1983, yeah, I didn't get hired right. yeah. by the NYPD by 87. But the funny thing is, like in our Auto Crime Division, we had these file cabinets. With uh, and this is before things were computerized. We had file cabinets of index cards 
You know, anytime you made an arrest of somebody to do an auto theft, you were required to fill out these index cards and staple a photo to it. And, you know, here I am almost 20 years after, you know, Murder Machine and Roy DeMeo's crew. And I remember one time I was out in the Queens office for like filling in on a midnight. I was like a kid in a candy store going through these index cards and like, wow, I read about this guy. You know what I mean? So. You know, some kids collect baseball cards. I I was interested in organized crime. <laughs> interesting, huh? I wish I could have worked with you, dude. <laughs> we had a fun time. We would have had a fun time, man. <laughs> that would have been cool. Well, so it, the, just the NYPD. The- that's a, a big, cumbersome organization, and you know. Uh, what what other kinds of stories do you talk about in the NYPD in, in your books? Give us some examples well, it, of those. What, what can yeah, guys sure. find out in there? Well, this one one of the cases we did was if you ever you ever watch uh, Fox News, Judge Janine. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she, the Westchester County DA's office started. We were getting crushed. The tri-state area. We were getting crushed with Audi A sixes. They were vanishing. I mean, car dealerships were getting hit on weekends. Like 10, 12 Audi A sixes were vanishing. And we knew the cars were being shipped because usually when cars get stolen, they turn up, stripped, chopped, burned. You find the bones of the car at some point or another. These, you know, we're getting 30, 40 cars stolen a month and they're not turning up anywhere. So we knew they were being exported out of the country. This guy winds up getting grabbed out in um, the Palisades Mall out in Rockland County, stealing a BMW. He, um, He owed jail time in Florida. He did not want to go back. So he flipped and gave up the gang. So what was going on was you had a, a an ex-Chinese or current, I don't know for sure. We never got a straight answer, but there was a Chinese military official in Brooklyn. He hooked up with this, this Jamaican guy from the Bronx, and he would order between 25 and 30 Audi A6s a month. Oh, wow. The Jamaican knew all these steel guys in the Bronx. So the Chinese guy would pay the Jamaican five grand a car. The Jamaican would pay the car thieves between $500 and $1,000 a car. They'd steal the cars, park them on the street for a couple of days to make sure they didn't have LoJack or a tracking device. The Chinese had a warehouse out in Brooklyn. So what they would do is they would do it for like first thing in the morning when people were going to work, like 7, 30, 8 o'clock in the morning. They'd open the garage. Two or three Audis would go in. They'd close the door. Inside this, and it was a large garage, um, they would put two stolen. And Audis per shipping container, let the air out of the tires so the vehicle would sit low in the in the truck. Then they would build a frame above it and hoist two, one or two cars above it so they would get two to three cars per stolen container. Mm. Then they would have the shipping containers with the stolen vehicles uh, trucked to Newark, New Jersey, where they were put on trains and railed across the United States. And then they were shipped uh, out of Long Beach, California, if I remember serves me correctly. And then they were going to uh, Shanghai. Mm. So we had wiretaps. That's the great thing about the NYPD. We had Asian cops that spoke Mandarin and Cantonese. So we brought them off patrol and put them in a wire room. So they're monitoring the Chinese phone calls. A lot of our thieves spoke Spanish. We had several detectives that spoke Spanish monitoring the Spanish guy's phone calls. And in addition to this international car theft ring, it started becoming apparent that our thieves were in the murder for hire business. So they're talking about whacking this guy and clipping this guy. So when we finally took that case down, we solved probably about 15 homicides. Wow. That was, that was a heck of a case. 
How long, yeah, did, it how was. long did you guys work on it? How much time do you have to spend on it? Like six months? Well, they, the, the funny thing is these guys were doing it for years. And what would happen was uh, prior to us getting involved in it, the New York State Police and the Westchester County DA's office, like a year and a half before, were on to these guys. They got too close to them. The Asians spotted them, closed up shop. They got nothing. Um, but then they waited a year. They were patient. They waited a year, hoped till things blow over. By the time we came along, we were on that case for probably about a year. The case probably would have went on longer and gotten more things in it. What blew up the case was the thieves got greedy. The main thief used to be a, a garage attendant. And we knew this off the wiretap. The main thief called up his friend who was a garage attendant in his garage on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, right off the FDR Drive. And he told his friend, listen, how about I come up there with about 10 of my friends next week? I'll give you three grand. You give us all the keys to the cars we want. We'll tie you up. We'll put you in the trunk. You wait about a half hour, then start making noise in the trunk. We'll leave you in a car right at the front. Yeah. You start making noise. Something, someone will let you out of the trunk, and you just say a bunch of guys with ski masks came. He says, all right. So, I mean, we filmed the whole thing. We had a camera outside. We watched them go in. We watched the cars go out. The last car went into that warehouse. And the 911, the last call went into the warehouse in Brooklyn, and the 911 call was going off in Manhattan, like at the same time. It's pretty cool. So, what winds up happening is, and it's like that scene in Goodfellas at the end when Ray Liotta is asking the girl, Did you make sure, you know, make sure no one's on the phone? Don't talk on the phone. The main thief, Mario, is asking his brother in law, I think he goes, Did you make sure those cars that you swept them for low jack? He goes, Yeah. He goes, No, no, no. Don't, yeah, yeah. Did you make sure? And he goes, Yeah, don't worry about it. Well, they didn't. So the next day, the person goes into the precinct, reports their car stolen, and a low jack starts pinging, unbeknownst to us, in this warehouse in Brooklyn, right? Macy's doesn't tell Gimbel's and the NYPD. Yeah. We don't tell the precinct cops that there's a warehouse in their precinct because you know how cops are. They're nosy. They'd be no, I know, I know. You know how it works. Yes, so we don't tell them anything. You got these two, a cop and a lieutenant or a cop and a sergeant go running into this warehouse and, and they had a fake wall. They had a, It was really set up well. And they didn't see the cars initially. And they saw these Chinese guys and they gave them this bullshit story that they, it was a toy factory or something. The Asians ran out the back door. The cops, by the time the cops figured out they had these stolen cars in, we're calling them up and saying, get out of there. So then we had a round. Now the phones are blowing up. We had to round up all these guys in a couple of hours. And it's funny, like the two warehouse workers were Chinese. We we had photo, we had surveillance photos of them and we knew the block they lived in, but we weren't even really sure what building they lived in. Oh, yeah. So we me and my partner got assigned to try to find them. And I'll never forget, we're circling this neighborhood. I think it was in Bensonhurst, and uh two Chinese guys come walking out out of an alleyway with suitcases right <laughs> and my partner goes what about them so i slam on the brace we get out we start talking to them and they're pretending like they don't speak english and i put my hand on the guy's chest and his heart was going like this i'm like all right and in his front pocket he had uh, plane tickets to toronto so they were gone yeah so we we, we had our our chinese detectives who were following them so yeah that's them but I mean, they were these guys, they had a plan like they were gone and we just happened to pick them off. They were on their way to the airport. <laughs> Interesting. We we had a we took off a guy with about, I don't know, eight or 10 kilos off the train. And we knew kind of where he was going to end up. We had somebody sitting on that 
place, but we didn't have really any probable cause. And all of a sudden, right. this guy shows up with this panicked look on his face, looking everywhere. And so my guys say, oh, okay, look. So they see him running into off. the apartment, into the building. And so they just jump out and run right in after him. They get another two or three kilos and a bunch of other stuff. So, <laughs> you know, in the NYPD, we call that the hairy eyeball. So like when, when, when they spot surveillance and you get that look, we go, shit, I got the hairy eyeball, which yeah. means, you know, they know that we know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes you got to move fast, don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before you're ready. So did you ever let cars go through? I mean, intentionally? How, oh, yeah. What was the ethics on that? I, I mean, how did you make those decisions on letting cars run through? That that was, that was wasn't made on my level. That was yeah. made with the Westchester County DA's office and our supervisors. When the case came down, I mean, some of those cars were in China. We were never going to get them back. Some of the some of the cars I do remember were on ships out at sea, and they did not drop the cars back. And then when they came back months later, we recovered cars coming back but no sometimes you got to let the cars go to keep the case going yeah yeah i know it's always there's always those ethical decisions that somebody has to make at some level how much do you let go on until you take it down and you got to get your case built and get it well it's not what yeah and it's not one insurance company right so you're talking about multiple victims yeah, yeah. You, you know what i mean at the end of the day letting a car a couple of cars go if you're gonna if you're gonna knock out an international you know crime syndicate that's shipping thirty cars a month and you know a couple of insurance companies get burned for a couple of cars, okay, but it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Well, this is <laughs> this is really really interesting. I you got a bunch more stories. I know that. <laughs> oh yeah, um, we, not not only that, like we had a lot of um, New York's very diverse. You have a lot of different different ethnic groups. The Dominican Republic, we had a lot of Dominican gangs that were shipping stolen vehicles, heavy equipment. I mean, you name it, they were shipping. We used to laugh and say we didn't know how the Dominican Republic didn't sink with the <laughs> amount of stolen cars and trucks that they used to send over there. And we had an informant that was in a gang of different gangs of thieves, and he would give us stuff. We couldn't keep up with this guy. He would just call us up all the time and say, I remember one time he called us up and he said, <clears throat> There's this little shitty Toyota pickup truck. It's getting shipped out of Red Hook, Brooklyn, which at the time was like an obscure port, didn't do much shipping. He says, there's, there's a um, there's this Toyota pickup truck. There's a bunch of guns in it. So we said, all right. So we called up customs. We had them pull it off the shipping container. Well, I don't think it was even in a container. We had them pull it. We go up there. We search this car. Nothing. We call him back like, listen, we got the Toyota pickup truck, but there's no guns in it. He goes, let me get back to you. About an hour later, he calls us up. He goes, okay. He says, he goes on the front of the, he goes, go to the front of the truck. He goes, you know, those vents for the windshield wipers with, with the, um, the little things come out to, sh you know, shoot the water at the windshield. He yeah, goes, yeah. yeah. Take, but like you're taking out the windshield wiper motors. They're in there. Uh, we took out the windshield wiper motors and it was like three, four guns wrapped up in, in, in oily rags. <laughs> and these guys are ingenious. We also used to do a lot of traps, the secret compartments and like, the Dominican guys, they were like Swiss watchmakers with this shit. Like you get into a car and you start it up, you put it in reverse, put the AC on and hit the defogger. And like the whole dashboard would lift, lift up and there'd be enough room for a gun or a key or panels would pop out of the back or you, you know, the floor. The, the, there was a platform built up on the floor. I mean, these guys were ingenious where they were used to hide shit. Yeah, I, I know those uh, Mexicans and bringing narcotics up, or you know, they're like, 
welded in. Oh, that goes back. Yes. Oh, well, it goes back to French Connection. They welded into those uh, different open spaces and cars. They get pretty ingenious in doing that. Of course, they got a lot of time when they get them back up here to a body shop. Well, isn't Kansas City? Because I I locked up a couple of guys a couple of times that were on federal warrants for like large traffickers out of Kansas City. So I'm guessing Kansas City is a hub. Yeah, yeah. We see we're kind of on the cocaine highway. I-35 comes right out of Laredo, right straight up into Kansas City. And and then we were getting a lot of coke coming on the train from uh, south uh, from Southern California. That's where we t- we took them off on the train. So it was it's kind of a crossroads. And from here you go on to Chicago and, and on farther north. So it's uh, especially at I thirty five. Just I can't even imagine how many millions of dollars went south and and how many pounds and pounds and uh, cocaine came north on that I thirty five. Oh, yeah. I, I remember early in my career, I locked up a couple of young kids like they were young, like 21, 22. And I pulled them over and they had fake driver's licenses. And I, at first, I, I I didn't know what to do with them. I said, I'm just going to run them through the system. And my phone the next day, like the phone at the precinct was running off, ringing off. The, they were wanted out of Kansas City. Huh. These two kids and they were kids. But for big time trafficking, like they must have been cartel members and they, they, they skipped on a federal indictment, wound up in New York. And I had just, they had the, like the driver's license, they had just gotten their hands on them. Yeah. So they were, they were Hispanic, they were Mexican or some Dominicans. Other, Dem- oh, they were Dominican huh? out of Kansas City. Well, anyhow, so this has been great, Vic. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and telling some stories. Maybe I could get you to come back. We tell sure. some more stories one of these days. Absolutely. That would really be fun. I, I really appreciate you coming on. And folks, I'm going to, you, you see his books up there. If you're on YouTube, you've seen the, the titles of his books, the pictures of them. And I'm going to have links on the, uh, in the show notes and in the notes on uh, my YouTube channel. And so I encourage you to go try one of these books. You try one, you may end up buying them all because he's got, maybe got all together. I got six. Six. Okay. That's, uh, I, I suspect uh, that you've got a style that people like. If you write like you talk, <laughs> then <laughs> I'm sarcastic. You're gonna you're gonna have a style that that will be attractive to a lot of guys that listen to this show or watch this show. I can promise you that, Vic. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks Thank you so much, much Gary. Well, folks, that's been great. Uh, don't forget, I ride motorcycles, so watch out for motorcycles when you're out there driving around. And if you have a problem with PTSD or you have a friend or a relative that has a problem with PTSD, and if you've been in the service, go to the VA website and get that hotline number. There's going to be help available for you. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot, Vic. No, thank you.